We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Klaus Badenhagen. Always good to be here. Tonight we'll be discussing the Ministry of Labour announcing regulatory changes to allow for 28,000 additional migrant workers to be allowed to enter Taiwan. The National Security Bureau warning of the threats posed by illegal Chinese overseas police stations. The Cabinet approving an action plan, it says, will make Taiwan's streets safer for pedestrians. Controversial proposals by candidates in the National Taiwan University student election causing widespread outrage and the death at the age of 92 of Taiwan's last known comfort woman. But we'll begin with it being that time of the year once again when all government eyes are on the Swiss city of Geneva and the World Health Assembly which of course is a party that Taiwan is not invited to attend anymore now Health Minister Shui Ruiyuan has been heading a government delegation although you know, government officials although not being senior government officials to Geneva this week where he's been meeting the press and pushing the case for Taiwan to be allowed to enter as an observer, that being into the WHA. Now, the week began with members of civic groups rallying in Geneva and taking part in an event in the Swiss city, during which they happened to bump into the WHO's director-general. Now, they posed for some nice photographs with him while promoting Taiwan's participation in the global health meeting. Now, the health minister kicked off the week by expressing his regret and dissatisfaction that Taiwan has once again been excluded from the WHA, calling the exclusion solely due to political interference because of objections from China. Now, here in in Taiwan, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs expressed its dissatisfaction towards Taiwan's exclusion, saying the WHA's decision not to put a proposal initiated by Taiwan's diplomatic allies on the agenda to invite the island to participate in the event as an observer is deeply regrettable. Now, Foreign Minister Joseph Wu also slammed the head of the World Health Organization for his failure to adhere to the global health body's own regulations concerning Taiwan's participation in the global health body's annual meeting. Now, later in the week, the health minister met the press again, during which time he re- reiterated that although the WHO Director-General has said Taiwan's being invited to attend the World Health Assembly requires a vote by member states, this is not the case, as the head of the global health body has the authority to invite Taiwan to participate, as was the case in 2009, when the then WHO Secretary-General directly invited Taiwan to attend as an observer. However, he went on to stress that he doesn't believe that Tedros Adhanom should be described as being unfriendly towards Taiwan, as the health minister went on to say it will be better to have him as a good friend. Now, meanwhile, the US State Department on Thursday voiced its disappointment at the World Health Organization's failure to invite Taiwan, with a State Department spokesman saying, well, the US has been strongly encouraging the WHO to follow past practices and invite Taiwan to participate for many years now. And if that wasn't enough, well, international media organisations urged the United Nations to grant all journalists access to its events, that after two Taiwanese reporters were denied access to this week's World Health Assembly in, well, Geneva. So, Brian, it all sounds much of the same there, but people said some slightly different things. Like the health minister (laughs) defended the WHO head. Yeah, that's right. And so this is one of these stories that comes up year after year, and we are back to that again. There was a period uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic and the height of it that there was much more push for Taiwan being allowed to participate in WHA, touting its accomplishments, for example, fighting COVID-19, containing it when there were outbreaks, and avoiding the expansive lockdowns that the rest of the world uh, experienced. But then the U.S. also threw its weight behind Taiwan at that point in time. Uh, in a period of particularly high tensions between the U.S. and China. And so that was unable to secure Taiwan uh, observer status with the WHA. And so in the years since then, it's unlikely that there would be 
as much momentum. And so this time around, it's much more the usual. You have the Minister of Health going over this time. Uh, in past years, sometimes the Minister of Health would not go over to manage the COVID-19 situation in Taiwan. But that was typical in the years before COVID. And so we're back to that. But then you do see more civil groups in Geneva uh, trying to raise awareness, such as the Here I Stand project went over, organized an exhibition and talks in co- collaboration with the government. But uh, various groups did go over. So it seems similar to past years, though. But, I mean, Klaus, do you think more countries have stepped up this year to call for Taiwan to be allowed to enter? I did not keep a list uh, to, to check if it was like 12 countries this year and 10 countries last year. There were some of um, Taipei's diplomatic allies, of course, who um, raised their voice for Taiwan. And there were also, next to the U.S., also there were um, some uh, European Union countries. Germany, for example, also called for... Um, Taiwan should be allowed to participate as an observer, but... Um, I mean, as, as you said, basically, it's a, it's a ritual that's being repeated year after year. Beijing is doing to do everything it can to make sure that the WHO is not the first UN organization where Taiwan is allowed to play any role against Beijing's will. So there is, as long as they don't want to, there's basically no chance of Taiwan being allowed to join as an observer, even though theoretically there might be a possibility to to uh, to allow Taiwan in, different than from Taiwan um, becoming a full UN member, say. But um, still, even though it's basically hopeless, I think it's good that Taiwan is using this opportunity to try to raise its international profile and to remind the world that it is being treated unfairly. Because, of course, the WHO and Taiwan's role in the pandemic and the importance of a global health network is the right place to point out that it is it does really not make any sense to exclude Taiwan here. Um, so I think, yeah, Taiwan should continue to send delegations to Geneva, even though they will not be allowed to enter. They can hold press conferences. And every time other countries like Germany, for example, um, mention Taiwan now in this forum, it's good because it normalizes other countries speaking out for Taiwan. I mean, just a few years ago, any German government official even um, would utter the word Taiwan in any context, it would be newsworthy. And now it's becoming normalized, which is good, which is what Taiwan needs in this situation. And Brian, what about domestically? Obviously, the government uses this to push Taiwan's arguments to the international audience. What about domestically? What are local people thinking about the WHO? And are they even thinking about the World Health Organization? Um, it's interesting because there have been periods in past years in which there is much more focus. Again, it is ritualistic. And the WHO and WHA are one of the international organizations that Taiwan focuses much more on in efforts to gain admittance. Another one is, for example, the International Civil Aviation Organization, which regulates air traffic safety. And so as in past years, the government releases videos and so forth to kind of make its appeal. Uh, but then in terms of domestic audiences, sometimes there's not as much focus because I think people are used to it. It does come up and it is a front page story, but this occurs regularly around this time basically every year. Uh, in past years, though, there was the outrage against Tedros, the uh, head of the WHO, regarding the fact that he alleged Taiwan made a racist campaign against him. And so, for example, one of the reactions from civil society was to crowdfund an ad in the New York Times citing Taiwan's contributions to global health and with the slogan that Taiwan can help. And so that's an incident in which there is much more greater focus. But around the time, there's also an incident regarding the RHTK, uh, RTHK journalist, the Hong Kong public broadcaster, questioning a senior advisor to WHO, Bruce Elward. And then he awkwardly tried to avoid commentary on Taiwan. And so 
because of these instances, because of the fact that during that time there's much more international focus on the WHO and WHA during COVID, uh, that did lead to greater attention from domestic audiences. But this time around, I think far less so. There's far less intensity to coverage of the WHO and WHA this time. Well, another topic that came up in this context was the Taiwanese journalists being excluded from attending to report about the WHA um, to Central News Agency reporters who say they already had their accreditation approved, and then when they went there to pick up their press card, they um, were told, uh, sorry, we can't do that, we don't recognize this uh, Taiwanese passport you have, so you can't, um, you, you can't attend at all. Which then led to solidarity messages by international journalism federations and the Taiwan Foreign Correspondence Club and so on, which also, again, raises uh, Taiwan's profile and makes the UN look really bad and look like a stooge um, for China. Also, it, just a few years ago, 2015, there were always reports about Taiwanese not even allowed to enter UN premises in Geneva as tourists because they would need to show some form of ID, Taiwanese passport not accepted. Back then, a UN spokesperson said, no, we cannot recognize Taiwanese passports, but if they have another form of valid ID, maybe a Taiwanese driver's license or social security card, then of course we would let them in. And now they were flatly told, well, you need to have the Taibao Zhang, the um, Azad's passport that uh, China gives to, to Taiwanese, uh, which they said they don't have, so that was the outside. So um, this is another point that Taiwan can really use to, to point out and say how regrettable this is and how bad it really makes the uh, the UN look. And Brian, do you think these reporters, maybe if they had that bit of paperwork, that little card you pay, Taiwanese nationals have to travel to China, and they'd gotten in, it would have been a different story? Or do you think there'd have been a backlash about, hey, they needed this mainland China travel card? Uh, that's a good question, because it did seem like there was instructions to not allow them in. They uh, did quote, for example, a staffer that they talked to in the course of this process. Uh, they wrote a report on their experiences. And the staffer seemed sympathetic, but said there had been internal pressure from China. And so what form that pressure took is unknown or was specified, or what conditions in which they've been allowed in. And so it's, it's a question there, but it is quite interesting in the case of journalists that were apparently already accredited traveling over and then being denied, because that itself is a news story, but it may discourage Taiwanese news organizations from covering uh, these kind of events internationally because of the cost of flying over journalists, perhaps only to have them denied once they arrive. Well, in this case, the journalists also said that when filling out the application in the first place, apparently they chose to select Thailand as the country from the pull-down menu <laughs> because there was no uh, Taiwan or no Republic of China and they didn't want to, to select China. So, I mean, this, of course, gives an easy opening to the UN to say, oh, well, sorry, you made um, you, you gave us some wrong information, so we're not going to let you in. So this is a really difficult situation for Taiwanese journalists when they want to attend an international UN-organized event like this. Moving on now, and the Ministry of Labour this week announced plans to loosen the criteria for the employment of migrant workers. Now, according to the Ministry, the move means an additional 28,000 migrant workers were able to come to Taiwan to help address the island's labour shortage. The new policy targets workers in the manufacturing, construction, agriculture and caregiving sectors and is expected to be introduced in mid-June at the earliest. Now, the largest number of extra workers, that being a total of 14,000, will be allocated to the caregiving sector. Now, the Ministry's Workforce Development 
agency says the new policy was developed with the Ministry of Agriculture, the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Economic Affairs. And under the plan, the government is also making it easier for individual farmers or small-sized farming operators to hire migrant workers. Now, qualifications for migrant workers are also being loosened for flour, vegetable, tea and coffee farms, while logging and afforestation companies are now also allowed to hire foreign workers. So, Klaus, more foreign workers to address the island's labour shortage, but only 28,000. Yeah, 28,000 might sound like a big number at first, but uh, let's remember that there are more than 600,000 migrant workers in Taiwan currently. So this is an increase of, well, less than 5%, which is uh, substantial, but it's not huge. It's not like a sudden game changer here. It really shows how much... Um, Taiwan is reliant on migrant workers in the caregiving sector, farming, uh, construction work, and also some uh, labor-intensive industries. So it's fair to say that without these well, 600 or 20, plus 28,000 uh, workers, um, Taiwanese um, industries and the um, caring for the elderly uh, would just collapse, which, which shows how important this is. So I would just wish that in addition to the micromanagement that goes into deciding which company is allowed to hire, how many workers more, these companies can have 40% migrant workers, these companies can have 50% migrant workers. There are very specific regulations that as much work would go into making sure that these people are better integrated into Taiwanese society and, um, quite frankly, treated better because they still face a lot of discrimination. They still ha- We still have a two-class system for white-collar foreigners and blue-collar foreigners. This all reflects really badly on Taiwan whenever something goes wrong, whenever there's cases of mistreatment or exploitation. So I just wish that finally the government would really be serious about improving the situation of these people that they encourage to come and that they need to come here as well. That's right, and it's very difficult for migrant workers to stay in Taiwan. I mean, there's claims that the government is simplifying the process, making it more open, allowing for permanent residency, but then this requires the permission of employers to categorize their workers as intermediate uh, skilled labor, and it requires like over a decade then to stay in Taiwan, and so the conditions facing migrant workers are still appalling. Uh, Taiwan does have a priority to distinguish itself from other countries in the region to continue to attract migrant workers because it is so desperate for migrant work in some fields. There is, as mentioned, the caregivers who are taking care of the elderly, and the population, of course, of elderly in Taiwan is rising daily, with Taiwan slated to become a super-age society within the next few years. But then I think what often is not discussed as much is that industry, uh, manufacturing, and Taiwan's key industries, such as semiconductors, are very reliant on this, also need a lot of labor, as with agriculture. Just agriculture alone needs tens of thousands of seasonal workers. And so is that enough, actually, just this number of migrant workers? And uh, there's reluctance from the government to open up new sectors to migrant work, such as the hotel industry or the hospitality industry and so forth. And so it is a question, because within some of these industries, such as manufacturing or particularly agriculture, there is now this reliance on this floating population of undocumented migrant workers that are between jobs, left for original employment illegally, and so forth. But th- th- there is such a need for labor that they end up in the- doing this work. And so there are calls to streamline the system to open up more and allow for more people to come to make up for the shortfall, but then the government is still quite reluctant. And I think a lot of times that goes back to this fear of opening up a labor market to foreigners. I think fear is a really important word in this context uh, because I come, I come from a country, Germany, that uh, has also 
been having a really hard time coming around to realizing that um, more immigration is desperately needed because, um, well, it's a really rapidly aging society and um, certain sectors might just collapse. But there's still a lot of people who do not, um, well, sympathize with this and who... Um, instinctively are against um, encouraging uh, immigration and also pretty similar to Taiwan in a way I think there's a lot of people who think that th this country, Germany or Taiwan uh, this is so we're, we're, it's a great place here and everybody, the whole world or the whole region is basically dreaming of coming here and they are just standing in line and want to come here and work. But that's not the case. I mean, people have alternatives. They, they can go to other countries which maybe treat them better or pay them better. And Taiwan does really not want to risk falling behind and losing also the, the soft power points that it has made in the future. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a competition going on here. And if, if Taiwan realizes we, we, need, we need this workforce, then they should make sure they have better conditions when they come here. But do you think that's likely to happen in the next year or two, Brian? And do you think that's something that is going to take many, many long times to come? Yeah, I think it's going to take quite some time uh, on several levels. One is societal in terms of, for example, just society needs to learn to treat migrant workers better because you do see these sad incidents of abuse. Uh, you have people in line groups bragging about how they keep their domestic caregivers keep it working without giving them breaks. And there's just this belief then that just migrant workers can keep working around the clock. Uh, with the COVID outbreak then in Miaoli, one saw migrant workers confined to their dormitories and not allowed to leave. These basic freedoms of movement restricted. So that's the side level. But then in terms of the government, there's all this bureaucracy and all these different stakeholders. For example, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, National Immigration Agency, and the executive branch as a whole all these uh, forces kind of pushing and pulling and it requires so much contestation between them just to get any reform done or to open or even discuss opening up more uh, kind of slots for migrant workers to come in or what process by which they come in. And then there's also systemic issues regarding, let's say, brokers. And the government is reliant on brokers then to get migrant workers over and arrange for their work in Taiwan or their transportation, uh, legal documents, sometimes where they stay. But then this imposes a lot of money on migrant workers. And there is the demand from some governments in the region now to phase out brokers, such as Indonesia in particular. And so that is another kind of issue, I think. And, and so it's a, it's a much larger issue at hand here. And there's a lot of things that are kind of tied together and hard to resolve. And the National Security Bureau on Tuesday warned Taiwanese citizens to remain on alert to the threat of covert surveillance by illegal Chinese overseas police stations. The statement follows the release of a recent NSB report in which the intelligence agency stated that police chow service stations often operate out of convenience stores, diners and private homes to track dissidents and overseas Chinese. Now, according to the report, a majority of the service stations are supervised by China's public security authorities based in several provinces and cities in China. And the NSB said that it will continue working with other countries to monitor any Chinese movement that threatens Taiwanese nationals living or travelling overseas. Now, of course, civic groups both here in Taiwan and overseas began calling on the government last year to step up its efforts to counter China's campaign of transnational repression. So these Chinese police stations in overseas countries, Brian, I mean, obviously, we've heard of them doing things. We've, I mean, in America, there was one in New York recently where you come from that was very well reported. But, I mean, do you think they currently pose a threat to Taiwanese nationals or is it more currently aimed at Chinese nationals? And do you think in the future they could be aimed at Taiwanese nationals. So I think that's a danger, and I think there's such caution there because of the fact that uh, there's the fear that Taiwanese could be targeted in the future. Right now, it is aimed at Chinese nationals. There are all these various organizations in uh, places where there are a lot of Chinese, uh, such as 
student organizations, local hometown place associations, and so forth. And Chinese United Front activity then sometimes crosses over with that. But then now the concern is not just United Front activity trying to win hearts and minds, but police itself perhaps taking action against people for their political views. And so, for example, when one looks at a case such as the Hong Kong Causeway Bay bookseller that was kidnapped in Thailand and not Hong Kong, that seems to be a case in which Chinese state security was operating outside of China, and they did actually con- they kidnap somebody. That was unlikely to have happened without the cooperation of the Thai authorities. And so, in context such as the U.S., is a question to what extent they could carry out actions without being surveilled by U.S. law enforcement, particularly at this time of tensions between the U.S. and China. But then in Taiwan, I mean, there's also the concern. I mean, the, the statement or claim was that there is not such a police station. China is not that brazen to do that yet. But then there is the belief that China is operating. A group such as the China Unification Promotion Party, the pro-unification political party that has organized crime ties, has been alleged as directly working with Chinese authorities in order to carry out certain actions. There are other groups in society that potentially could do that. And so then the fear is that this could take place within Taiwan itself. There's a recent incident involving a member of the Here I Stand Project, the group that tries to push for Taiwan's inclusion in the WHO and other organizations, being called up by two people that claim that, well, you purchased this book from Esleet and it's politically problematic, so tell us about it. And that was kind of ridiculous in the sense that these calls were very strange and not at all really threatening. But you do have this kind of stuff occurring. And so the question is to what extent and what uh, it is out in the open. And so I think there's this kind of concern about it now. So the indictments in the U.S. that... uh we are talking about right now, they also were connected to the so-called police station in New York, right? I mm-hmm. think. So I think it will be really, I'm really curious to see what comes out in the course if, if, if they are charged, if there's a trial, because right now I think what's missing is like a smoking gun, where it's really made clear beyond all doubt what is happening there, what these people are doing. Right now, China still has an easier time saying, well, this is all some Western media rumor, and um, they can deny uh, what what we are suspecting them of. So um, I think we really need to hold out and see if if we have some some concrete evidence coming out of this. But do you think Taiwanese people should be worried about maybe going on holiday to Thailand? I mean, if they have ties here to pro-independence groups and they pop off to Thailand for a holiday, do you think maybe they could be surveilled by Chinese intelligence? I think Taiwanese would be well advised to check out which countries have extradition treaties with China. So um, if for whatever reason, I mean, look at the national security law in Hong Kong. Um, it can be applied internationally, theoretically. So it hasn't happened yet, but um, maybe China would go as far as saying, um, well, f- I think France, France even has an extradition treaty with China. So um, let, let's say a Taiwanese person goes to country X for, for vacation, does not even transfer in China, and um, is arrested and extradited to China. It seems um, unfathomable right now, but um, if if they really want to push it and, and go this way, I think I think it's possible. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and the Cabinet has approved an action plan. It says will help make Taiwan's streets safer for pedestrians. Now, according to the Cabinet, 19 measures will be implemented to improve infrastructure, promote road safety education, tighten law enforcement, and crack down on repeat traffic offenders. Now, the Construction and Planning Agency says 5 billion NT was allocated last year to fund a two-year project to improve pedestrian safety in areas near schools. And the office says an additional 24 billion NT 
NT will be added from 2023 to 2025 to expand that programme. Now, according to the agency, roadside obstacles will be removed, crosswalks and sidewalks in areas near public facilities, such as parks, will also be improved, and 25 new pedestrian-friendly areas will be created island-wide. And the agency says those areas will see vehicle speeds limited to 30 kilometres an hour. Now, the additional 24 billion NT for the Pedestrian First Action Plan will come from the special budget of the government's forward-looking infrastructure development programme. And government officials say the ultimate goal is to get all drivers into the habit of giving priority to pedestrians. But, Brian, should we be holding our breath for this action plan to actually make any difference? Well, I think there have been a lot of efforts to really change up traffic safety in Taiwan and improve things, but then they usually run out of steam. There's some discussion of this, particularly around the time of elections, or if there's concern this will affect Taiwan's international image. And then after some period of time in which there's a little bit of action, then it goes back to normal. And so this time around, there's much more focus on Taiwan because of all these reports from, let's say, the U.S. State Department or Canada or other countries, such as Japan, stating that Taiwan is dangerous to pedestrians. It's a place in which, for example, you could get hit by scooters or by cars and so forth. And so there is that issue of then international perception. But I think ultimately, uh, sometimes the approach from the government is very short-sighted. And, and sometimes it is just ramping up the punishments that uh, pedestrians or people, uh, people that violate pedestrian safety laws will have. And so an uh, action plan, I mean, that sounds better. But then what does it consist of? I mean, there's a need for better education, uh, concrete measures to ensure that people know their rights and so forth. And is that happening? That's that's a question. Yeah, when has an action plan ever really quickly turned things around? I mean, first of all, Brian is right. This, in this case, it really goes back to the CNN report with the great headline, Taiwan's traffic is a living hell for pedestrians, I think, which was about what half a year ago or so. And th- that's really driving the debate right now. So, um, which is good. I mean, um, there are definitely... There's definitely a lot of room for improvement. The fatality rate in traffic accident in Taiwan is way higher than in countries like um, Japan or, or South Korea, or Singapore, whatever Taiwan likes to compare itself to. But, uh, yeah, what do you do to fix it? I mean, um, of course, education, um, changing the traffic culture, that sounds like a no-brainer. It should be done, but it's also not something that yields results quickly. I mean, um there's several generations of drivers on the road right now, and um, you will not be able to change their behavior anymore. And um, it, it's a matter of, I don't know, decades until this might bear fruit. I, I saw an interesting diagram the other day which listed possible measures with the um, how complicated they are and how expensive they are to implement, and on the other hand, how effective they would be. And the, the most easy to implement and also most effective would be uh, banning cars. So you, you ban cars, there will be no more car accidents. <laughs> so, um, the next one is more interesting. It's uh, separating cars and um, pedestrians in traffic. So um, if you really keep them separate, um, those those accidents are less likely to happen. And that's where an idea comes in that some people have also been touting. It's um, if you look at the crosswalks, um, just make sure that we also have this on on some crossings. Just make sure then whether when there's a green light for pedestrians that only pedestrians can cross the road in all directions. And then uh, when the pedestrians have a red light, then all the cars can go. So you don't have the, the most um, the most dangerous situation right now is cars turning right and um, pedestrians crossing that road at the same time. So if you just really eliminate this possibility, this could have. Um, 
an immediate effect that could actually be felt. So I, I really hope that somewhere in this action plan there's some room to implement regulations like these. Yeah, I mean, there's talk of changes, for example, phasing out the two-stage uh, turn for scooters currently. There's also the attempt to promote, for example, cars, uh, when they violate things, having pedestrians film them. And so then you can punish them in that way if you get their license plate. And so those actions, I mean, they are punitive and not educational per se, but that could have some effect if people do do that. I mean, I think oftentimes what happens is pedestrians don't actually know their rights. They don't know that they have a right of way. Uh, there's a viral video that went viral yesterday of a pedestrian crossing exactly on the crosswalk and gets hit by a car and the, you know, He's unharmed. He just rolls off, and then he just keeps walking. And people compare this to like Grand Theft Auto, in which just you hit people with your car and they just get up and keep walking as though nothing happened. And I looked at this, and I was just like, he was compared specifically to a, a non-player character in a video game. I'm thinking, well, this guy doesn't know his rights. I mean, the driver actually stops and gets out, and this man just tries to keep walking. I mean, I think he was in the right there, and <laughs> so I don't know what's going on there. And what about these these new pedestrian-friendly areas? Are 25 of them? Island-wide, Klaus. I mean, does that seem enough pedestrian-friendly areas, well, island-wide? I haven't seen any of those areas yet. I mean, what what does it consist of? Like painting green stripes on the road? They get, the idea is to limit speeds of vehicles in the area to 30 kilometers an hour. Yeah, let's do it. And uh, let's make sure it's... Um, being implemented and the rules are being enforced and then uh, we can see uh, possibly um, everybody will be happy in the end because it it has been shown that reducing the maximum speed in cities is leading to uh, less noise uh, more relaxed driving and um, not leading to i don't know traffic jams or taking longer to get from a to b so yeah let's start with that yeah, and one of the things I think is that particularly in Taiwan, uh, as a high-tech society, there's so much data on where there are traffic accidents. And so finding the areas in which there are a lot of traffic accidents, taking measures, I don't think that should be too hard. I think the real issue is bureaucracy, that there's so much, again, stakeholders between local governments, the central government, police, uh, the Ministry of Transportation and Communications. And so this kind of stuff ends up taking a lot of time, but just ways to cut through the red tape that might actually be what's most helpful here. Moving on now, and two candidates running on the same ticket in a National Taiwan University student election suspended their campaigns and have been referred to the school's Gender Equality Committee for making offensive policy proposals. Now, the two students were forced to withdraw from the election for the head and deputy head of the Department of Economics Student Association after proposing what many are calling extreme policies backed up with the use of crude and discriminatory language. Now, the proposed policies included banning LGBTQ people and dogs from playing online games arena of valor in the association's office and for those who graduate without having a boyfriend or girlfriend to be surgically sterilized there were also proposals to cut the admission quota of indigenous people overseas taiwanese and sports students and to prohibit people from having a body mass index of 20 and over from taking an elevator now needless to say this outraged a lot of people and education minister pan Wenjong came out and said that the candidate's rhetoric did not comply with the spirit of education and he went on to stress the importance of diversity now, the National Taiwan University says that two students have been referred to the school's Gender Equality Committee for making said offensive policy proposals. And according to the university, they could face penalties ranging from an official reprimand to expulsion. So, Brian, obviously, my question when I saw this story was, did they do it to get attention or do they actually believe this muck? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's very unlikely that a they would believe that uh, people that do not have partners should be sterilized, or that they would have any way of implementing this if they were elected. So it is a joke, and it's tied to get attention and just rile people up, and that is what it did, and so that's why there's this strong reaction. It takes place at the same time as another controversy on NTU regarding banners that had discriminatory statements regarding indigenous, and so this is kind of all over the place: sexism, racism, and so forth. Uh, homophobia, but then uh, the reaction from the school is to come down with discipline, and that includes threatening expulsion for these uh, kids. And uh, expulsion is normally reserved only for case of sexual assault on NTU. And also reports that industry, because uh, they're running for the student council of the economics department, has potentially sought to block them from ever entering uh, companies. But then I think oftentimes in this case is actually uh, there's all this social discussion of whether the quality of NTU students has declined. But then actually looking back at the uh, uh, past years of some other elections, there were actually candidates that had similar. Platforms, it just does not become a media firestorm. And so this time around, it does seem like NTU is reacting to kind of defend its image here with strict punishment. But then, is there actually an issue of this kind of uh, statements or dialogue going on at NTU or elsewhere? behind closed doors, and just after this kind of wave of punishment passes, it just continues. And so kind of looking at the broader kind of social context of which discriminatory statements such as this are made, that's perhaps what is not occurring. You just have this call for punishment to save face and then just move on with us. Yeah, I mean, these guys are obviously immature idiots, and it's it's right that they're being called out for this. And um, you mentioned that some uh, NTU graduates who are now... Um, working in, in uh, big companies have already said, okay, we know these guys' names, we will never be uh, hiring them. And um, no matter from what kind of privileged background they come, I think they should have learned their lesson by now and should be feeling the, feeling the pain of the consequences of what they have done here. Um, I'm wondering why, why they were actually allowed to be on the candidate list with totally ridiculous statements like this. Should there not have been someone earlier um, saying well yeah um, student democracy and all that is fine but we, we this is not what the, this is not what that's for and also I'm, I'm wondering if this had happened at any other university than NTU would there have been such a huge public outcry? because apparently it being the best university in Taiwan it's still being held to different standards and uh, this also speaks of some kind of elitist thinking going on here. So it's like this had happened at, um, I don't know, provincial universities, something down in South Taiwan. Um, it would not be worth talking about. But since this is uh, this is our elite university, the, the Minister of Education, and everybody has to has to weigh in on that. I don't know if that's if that's really healthy. I mean, Brian, one could argue to Klaus's point there that the, the, the policy to cut the admission quota of indigenous people maybe was what sparked the outcry in the first place because obviously the others could be seen as like jokes albeit bad jokes but that policy was obviously something that oh, hit a nerve yeah, I mean, that was actually a reaction against a policy that exists rather than just kind of a crazy proposal. So the, it takes place at the same time as a different controversy NTU regarding the banners I mentioned with discriminatory statements, because that was about the the preferential uh, boosting of scores, weighting of scores for indigenous students. And so in the past few days, there's also been demonstrations by indigenous groups on NTU campus, student groups, uh, stating that, for example, well, actually, this doesn't affect the quota of or the number of Han students that enters. And so why are people reacting against this? Yeah, but I think this this affirmative action policy is something which um, in the in the student body is uh, apparently really a controversial topic because uh, just some weeks ago I attended a lecture at the university, not going to say which one, 
And there was um, a German guy invited to um, talk to the students about the process of transitional justice in, in Germany and how it compares to Taiwan. And when it came to the students asking questions and weighing in on that, one of the first guys who raised his hand, Taiwanese student, um, the point that he mentioned was the uh, affirmative uh, action privileges that indigenous students uh, have in Taiwan and that that's not really fair to, to the Taiwanese students. And a lot of the students in the class um, seem to agree. So this is an uh, important subject that maybe um, people should pay more attention to. That There's more uh, education needed to, to make people understand what this is about and that this is not threatening them in any way, but working to, to right an injustice. Um, I think it's no coincidence that they picked this uh, specific subject to put on their list of so-called demands. Yeah, I think uh, it's quite interesting because it does come up at a time which NTU, for example, has much more international enrollment. And NTU historically has always had a number of overseas Chinese, mostly from Southeast Asian countries, as students as part of the ROC. It's a flagship school, so you're promoting these links. And so now there's this backlash against that. And so that is actually quite interesting to watch uh, in terms of that. With increasing diversity, then there's also this backlash against it. I think also uh, what the other substrate of this with the lashing out against uh, LGBTQ people. It's the notion of some people feel that there's this political correctness that's being enforced. And some among the student body are also perhaps reacting in that way. And so it does actually touch on these larger issues. And before we go this week, the Taipei Women's Rescue Foundation on Monday announced the death of the last known Taiwanese woman to have been forced into sexual slavery by the Imperial Japanese military during World War II. She was 92 and passed away on May the 10th. And the foundation says news of the woman's death was only reported this week because at the time the 92-year-old woman had indicated she wanted to remain undisturbed. Now, foundation officials say they hope the history of military sexual slavery will not disappear with the passing of Taiwan's last comfort woman. And it's advocating that their history be included in school textbooks and historical publications from Academia Historica. Now, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs also expressed its deep condolences following the woman's death, with office spokesman Jeff Liu saying the government is continuing to seek a formal apology and compensation from the Japanese government for the sexual exploitation of comfort women. Although Tokyo has repeatedly said the issue was resolved by the founding of the Asian Women's Fund in 1994, the government here has long insisted that it does not consider the use of the private fund as compensation truly issued by the Japanese government. Yeah, and so there's still a flashpoint issue in the region. Uh, particularly, it's an issue of contention between South Korea and Japan. It's not come up in the same way as much with Taiwan, uh, though it does sometimes. The pan-blue camp is usually much more antagonistic towards Japan, and the pan-green camp is more willing to allow Japan to get off the hook when that's concerned. And so this has been politicized in the past regarding, let's say, the Amal Museum, uh, the museum devoted to dedicating uh, to, to uh, documenting this history. And so it is uh, this time around, I mean, it also occurs at a time in which Taiwan does seek to strengthen ties with Japan, and oftentimes the leadership of Japan is quite revisionist. Shinzo Abe, who died and was assassinated and praised as a hero in Taiwan, was someone who's quite active in denying that Japan used comfort women. And so these issues are still at hand. And so despite that, this history, it is we are moving past that. I mean, if the last known comfort woman has died, that does reflect that time has passed, it's still unresolved. And so I think that is something that is a need of discussion that's not tied up with partisanship between both political camps. Yeah, putting politics aside for a moment here, I mean, let's just remember what these women had to go through, and uh, there were hundreds, if not thousands of them, and only by the 1990s or 2000s did some of them um, really dare to speak about their experiences, and I think they deserve huge respect for that, and that's why the museum that um, Brian just mentioned, the AMA Museum, AMA, 
um, it's really important and it's really worth checking out. They used to have their own building on Dihua Street, but um, they had to leave that during the pandemic and give it up. But as far as I know, they moved to a new location by now. I think in, um, they have a floor in an office building right now, and we established their exhibition there. So um, I think this sad news is definitely a good reason to, to go there and uh, yeah, check out this really important museum. And what about the point about school textbooks, Klaus? Do you think this issue should be covered in school textbooks in, th- de- in detail? I, th- than, I think... Rather well, than simply skipping over it and saying it happened. It definitely should not need to be skipped over. I mean, it deserves its own chapter in the history textbooks. Um, history books in Taiwan, with all the changes of government, are always um, a place where you can see uh, what is being emphasized and um, what is being played down. I mean, um, obviously this uh, should not be a reason to fan um, anti-Japanese feelings, uh, but at the same time, you should not give people suspicion that you are trying to gloss over what happened. So, of of course, um, all Taiwanese students should, should learn about this. I think so, absolutely. And so a lot of this history and uh, what happened during even just such recent history as this is stopping the air in Taiwan because it's so politicized. But then I think just for the truth of, you know, we always talk about transitional justice and truth and reconciliation. I mean, thinking about that in terms of just all these historical crimes in the past in the region, that's also really necessary if we want to work towards, let's say, peace or resolving these uh, issues from the past that are still unresolved. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Klaus Badenhagen. Great to be here. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.